Welcome back to the You Are Loved podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Neil, and we are exploring the greatest power in the universe, the love of God. I've got three main points today. The first must be last and servant of all. Welcome a child and you welcome God, where we see true humility. And uh, in Mark chapter 9, this is the second time that Jesus talks about the Son of Man must suffer and die. So, let's jump right into episode number 10, Who is the Greatest? Mark chapter 9, verse 34. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. This principle is exemplified by Jesus himself, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's a from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He relinquished his privileges and gave his life self-sacrificing in service of others a ransom. So what we see here in this passage is that true greatness comes through service, as Jesus' own example demonstrates. Uh, And this is, of course, a, a complete reversal of our worldly values. I love what Philippians 2, 5 says. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, yet did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if you're familiar with a TV show called Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe, then you'll know that he, you know, works as a pig farmer, a septic tank cleaner, just gets really dirty. And uh, I know I've had my fair share of some dirty jobs, digging ditches, shoveling manure. I've had to be a janitor and clean up kids' messes. Now, back in the ancient times, everyone walked everywhere they went. There were no sidewalks. So your feet got really dirty, and maybe even manure would be on your feet. So foot washing was a dirty job. Normally, servants would take on the role of washing people's feet. So the slave or the servant that got stuck with the foot washing had the dirtiest job. Now, in John chapter 13, here's what it says. Here's having loved his own, talking about Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them uh, to the uttermost, to the very end. And so, he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. Now after that, Jesus After he washed their feet, he said, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're you're right to say that, since that's what I am. So, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also are to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should follow 
do just as I've done for you. For truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Jesus is our supreme example of servant leadership. The self-giving manner in which Jesus fulfills his his messianic role, which is first and foremost uh, a role in the kingdom, provides the standard for his disciples. It's our standard, this servant leadership. Now we can see how important this principle is because it's all through the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this this principle of servant leadership. Um, So, point number one is he who wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Here's the second point that I see in this uh, Mark chapter 9. Verse 37, the point is, welcome a child, you welcome God. And it definitely deals with humility. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. Mark chapter 9 verse 37. So to squelch the disciples hankering for worldly greatness, Jesus uses a child as an illustration of kingdom greatness. Now, this is very important. There's no romanticized notion of children existed in the first century. Children had no power, status, or rights. They were not considered full persons and were regarded uh, somewhat as property. They were dependent, vulnerable, unlearned, and entirely subject to the authority of the Father. You know, the rabbis would classify children with the deaf, the dumb, the weak-minded, and slaves. Nowhere else in this period, time period do we find children appealed to as examples to be imitated. To become as a child, basically, in the context of ancient Israel, means to recognize one's insignificance and helplessness. I wonder if today, if Jesus would take maybe a homeless person and say, whoever welcomes this homeless man or woman welcomes me. The point is that true servant leadership turns social hierarchy on its head, lifting up and serving those of lower status in the eyes of the world. Now later on, Jesus says, Suffer the little children, forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is filled with people who could, have not, who could not have earned their way. Children didn't have money or status. They were totally dependent on their parents for everything. When, he, when, he, when Jesus first spoke of his suffering, he told them that the one who tries to save his or her life will ultimately lose it. But the one who loses his or her life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. That is Mark chapter 8, verse 35. Now he presents in a, another paradox. The one who wants to be first must become last and servant of all. You know, the disciples still have visions of grandeur. And they're not fantasizing about becoming servants who are at everybody's beck and call. So to reinforce the lesson, Jesus places a little child in their midst and announces, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Jesus does not set up the child as a model to be imitated, for his culture had no notions about children being especially obedient, 
or trusting or innocent or pure or humble. The point of comparison is the insignificance of the child. The child had no power, no status, and very few rights. And the child was dependent, vulnerable. Yet Jesus chooses such a one to represent those who are needy and lowly. If one wants to be great, one should shower attention on those who are regarded as insignificant, as Jesus himself has done. Jesus requires his great disciples to show humble service for the humble. You know, the world's philosophy is that you are great if others are serving you. But Christ's message is greatness comes from serving others. Jesus overheard his disciples uh, arguing about who would be the greatest. And he's quick to respond and correct them. Greatness in his eyes is about humility and service. And that brings us to point number three. The Son of Man must suffer and die. This is the second statement, and it's right there in Mark 9, verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. The second prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection. Back in Mark chapter 8 of our study, Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer and die. And by using that word, he's indicating, that word must, he's indicating that he is planning to die. He's doing it voluntarily. He's not merely predicting it will happen. Jesus didn't say that he would suffer, but that he must suffer. This word must modifies and controls the whole sentence. It means that everything in that list must happen. He must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and must resurrect. This is one of the most significant words in the story of the world, this, this must. What Jesus has said, it's not that I've come to die, but I have to die. I have to die so your life can be transformed by my love. I have to die so you can be forgiven of your sins. I have to die so that the power of death and evil can be broken. It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world cannot be renewed. Your life cannot be renewed unless I die. So we see in this Mark chapter 9 that the first must be last, the importance of servanthood. That you welcome a child, you welcome God, the the importance of humility, and that the Son of Man must suffer and die. I want to quote from Jonathan Edwards. This is a sermon called The Excellency, Excellency of Christ. It is true that He, Christ, has awesome majesty. He is the great God and is infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is a man as well as God. And he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. Whatever your circumstances are, you need not be afraid to come to such a savior as this. Be you ever so poor, mean and ignorant a creature, there is no danger of being despised. For though he may be so much greater than you, 
He is also immensely more humbled than you. If you'd like more information about our ministry, go to youareloved.net, Y-O-U-R-L-O-V-E-D.net, and send us your prayer request. God bless. Well, hi, it's Pastor Neil, and welcome to the You Are Loved podcast, where we explore the most transforming power in all of the universe, the love of God. This is episode 11, entitled The Purpose of Marriage. Here we go. God devised marriage to reflect His saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. Everything in Scripture proclaims that marriage, next to our relationship to God, is the most profound relationship there is. And that's why Like knowing God himself, coming to know and love your spouse is difficult and painful, yet rewarding and wondrous. The most painful and the most wonderful. This is the biblical understanding of marriage, and there has never been a more important time to lift up and give it prominence in our culture. So we want to take a look at Ephesians chapter 5 starting at verse 18 and 19. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here is declaring that everything he's about to say about marriage assumes that the parties are being filled with God's Spirit. Only if you've learned to serve by the power of the Holy Spirit will you have the power to face the challenges of marriage. So, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to take the truths about Jesus and make them clear in our minds and real to our hearts so real that they console and empower us, and this is important, and change us at our very center. So, there is a tight connection between marriage and life in the Spirit. And this connection teaches us two things. First, we see a picture given here of not two needy people, two people who are unsure of their own value or purpose, trying to find significance in meaning in another's arms. No, we don't see that at all. Two vacuums just make for a bigger vacuum and a very loud sucking sound. Paul assumes that the two spouses know why they were made by God and who they are in Christ. Sorry, movie fans. Uh, Thinking of Jerry Maguire, you don't completely complete me. No, uh, Scripture says I'm fearfully and wonderfully made in my mother's womb. The worship of God with the whole heart and the assurance of His love through Jesus Christ is the thing that our souls were meant to run on. I'm going to say that again. 
Because it's not just the worship of God. It's the worship of God with the whole heart in the assurance of his love. We're not seeking his love and his assurance. We've received it through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what our souls were meant to run on. We're often running on fumes. We must know where the fuel station is, and it's in the very presence of God. Psalm 16, 11 says, In thy presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. And we know from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Sorry, Dunkin' Donuts. America runs on worship, not sugar and caffeine. So, verse 19 Verse 8, end of verse 18 says, be filled by the Spirit. And then verse 19 and 20 tell you how to be filled by the Spirit. As you sing psalms and hymns, spiritual songs among yourselves, among yourselves with each other and to yourself, making melody to the Lord in your hearts. And then here it is. That's a picture of worship. And then this is a picture of gratefulness. Verse 20. Giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything. Giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gratefulness. Make a list of everything you're grateful for and talk to God about it. Give thanks to God the Father. You and you will be filled. If you spend if you give thanks to God the Father at all times for everything, you will be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Paul describes several marks of a person who is filled with the Spirit and this idea of singing and worshiping and making melody to the Lord in your hearts and, and it's with others, it's in community and this idea of being so grateful it's a loss of pride and self-will that leads a person to humbly serve and that leads him to verse 21 be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ Oh, be subject to one another. that That is straight out of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And it's the, you know, the enemy of marriage is self-centeredness. Selfish self-centeredness. Paul says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, there are things that my wife Julie can and should expect from me. To submit to her is to be accountable to her. And she's accountable to me. We're accountable to each other about our finances, our parenting. Actually, everything about our every aspect of our lives, we're, not, we're no longer individuals. Why? Because we're no longer individuals. We are one. We are to submit to, to be accountable to each other in our spiritual lives. Hebrews tells us we're to spur each other on to love and good works. We don't like that word submit here in America. We are not submitters. But this word is to serve, to be selfless. Our world, our society has the it's all about me disease. And that is the enemy of marriage. Submitting means meeting the needs of your spouse, being accountable to each other, becoming one. From this spirit-empowered submission of verse 21, Paul moves on to the duties of wives and husbands. And we're going to take a look at that in, in our next episode on marriage. And that is the rest of Ephesians 5. Now, 
If you'd like to send us a prayer request or donate to this ministry or find out more about this awesome love of God, go to yourlove.net, Y-O-U-A-R-E-love.net. Until then, put all of your hope and all of your trust in Jesus. You'll be glad you did.